Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Alina is typically excited today. Why are you excited, Alina? I'm excited because we've got a former lecturer of mine on today who's really, really awesome. Uh, her name is April Pudsey. She's a senior lecturer in Roman history at Manchester Metropolitan University. She's also a published author with books like Demography at the Greco-Roman World. April, she's the one who introduced me to ancient history. So pretty much it's all her fault uh, that I have a secret love of it. So welcome, April. Hi, uh, hi, Lily. Thanks. It's nice to hear your voice again after so many years. Oh you know what's hilarious is it's completely not a secret anymore, Alina. No, it's not a secret anymore. <laughs> it is. It's an open secret that everybody knows that I do the love. Worst a little bit. kept secret in the world that Alina screams when we do ancient history. <laughs> I do. I do love a bit of ancient history. It is fun because it is so completely the opposite of what I do now that it's great. And you get old stuff and you get such old stuff. It's true, it's old stuff, but it's all really, really relevant, actually. The more I do ancient history, the more I realise how relevant it is for understanding the, the mess we're all in. <laughs> <laughs> so listen, let's, let's start talking, because we're going to talk about something today that, that we haven't had on yet, which is uh, children in the Roman-Egyptian world. And we don't really get to talk about children very often. So I'm quite excited. So let's get on. So you've chosen obviously a very difficult sphere to work on. Again, children. Do you look at children in their immediate environment or just on a wider scale? Oh, on a wider scale, definitely. I think um, when we think about children, we're, we're often as historians, that they seem to be sidelined and marginalised a little bit. And they always seem to be the the add-on at the end <laughs> when you think about how life worked, how cities worked, how life in different environments work generally. But in the ancient world, you know, life was different. People lived in very different situations and environments. So, you know, you've got a lot of urban life, you've got a lot of village life, you've got a lot of rural communities and children were just present everywhere. So, I kind of try to look at, you know, what their family situation was like, how they interacted with each other. But also I try to figure out where they were, you know, were they in the fields, the workshops, schools and educational places, even in some cases involved in politics at, uh, at various ages as well. So I try to look at, you know, who children and young people interact with on a daily basis in different contexts and how that works, hopefully from their perspective when we're able to find that. So yeah, a range of different sort of places, not just their immediate family environment. 
because even that right is 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 very different in, in different contexts you know uh, we're not looking at a world where you've got a typical nuclear family of mum dad and 2.4 kids you've got quite a massive range of different types of family situations going on so people would live with uh, lodgers cousins lots of siblings but also uh, you know when people got married in the Roman Egyptian world, new wives would come and live in the, the, the home of their new husband. So you end up with families that have like long strings of brothers with their wives come to live with them and then they've all got kids. So you end up with kids living with loads of cousins. Uh, and we know that from a load of census documents as well from, from Egypt, from the, the time that we're talking about. So you get this kind of, even in the home and the family, the relationships that kids have with each other and with adults is very, very kind of particular to different circumstances. I love this concept of childhood in the ancient world and, and figuring out how it compared to the one we have now. But you've mentioned one of your sources there, but in Greek and Roman literature from the perspective of the elite and from memory. So does it mention children at all? What, what broadly are the sources that you use or do you find your stuff everywhere? Oh, well, it's amazing, actually, that the problem isn't so much lack of sources. The problem has been over the last century or so, uh, what we're actually looking for. And when you start looking for children's voices, it's amazing the places that you find them. So, you know, up until about the 1980s, if anyone mentioned Roman or Greek childhood, the first place you would go would be to look at Plato and Aristotle uh, and, and, you know, Seneca and people like that who write these very elite texts from a certain perspective. And they always view children as kind of incomplete citizens. You know, to be a citizen of Athens or Rome, you, you were a great speaker, you had eloquence in your speech, you were connected politically to these great civic institutions and so on. And if you're a child or a woman or a slave or anything that isn't, you know, the main sort of citizen type thing, you are seen as incomplete. So everything we get uh, in these kind of sources about childhoods or children's lives, is just an image, it's an illusion, it's an ideal that these people had. And that problem's really profound in ancient history because of the nature of the sources are overwhelmingly this type of, of philosophical kind of elite treatise on what, what the, the, the ideal behaviours of citizens should be. But actually, when you start looking at places, uh, you know, where you get everyday life, you see more and more children. So you look at inscriptions on funerary monuments, you see children. You look at tax receipts in Egypt, you see children. You look at documents detailing uh, work arrangements or farming arrangements, apprenticeships, household documents, you see children. You begin to see them everywhere once you actually start looking for them. Uh, and in some of my work that I've done, it's, you know, we start from that approach. You know, you systematically look for children and young people in a certain body of evidence and you'll begin to see them and start looking at things in a, a slightly different way. So, for instance, I look at Egypt in the Roman period, so the first three centuries CE, roughly speaking, and all the documents I work with are on papyrus, so they're these scraps of paper, uh, ancient Egyptian paper, papyrus, where you've got tax receipts, census documents, 
agreements for marriage and divorce where they detail what happens with children. You've got agreements for young people to go and work as an apprentice. You've even got some cases of young people writing themselves. Um, and then we have to think about well, who classifies as a young person because, <laughs> you know, I count people up to the age of about uh, their very early 20s. Um, but we've got evidence of people in, you know, in single figure ages, <laughs> so eight, nine and, and ten years old as well. So there's a lot of different types of source material if you're just looking at text. Um, but we can talk later about other types of archaeological material as well. So, yeah. Let's look at the day-to-day -day life for Roman children in Egypt. You briefly mentioned uh, about the household and mm -hmm. how they would live with, with, well, in a big family. What other living arrangements, what were they like? And where could these kids actually go? Yeah, so generally, um, we don't know much about ancient houses beyond uh, archaeology. But one of the great things about Egypt is you have got these census uh, records as well. So they took a census every 14 years, the Roman state. There are all kinds of historical problems with, you know, people lie on a census because, you know, 14-year-old boys were liable for tax. So obviously there are a lot of 14-year-old boys who don't get recorded. Uh, so it's difficult to see from that. But we also have archaeological remains of houses as well. And so there's a village in Egypt called Tabtunis where we've got the remains of houses across a couple of centuries at least. And you see these small houses that are slightly different to what we'd expect of, say, a Greek or a Roman house, where, in, you know, you might expect a courtyard centrally, like an atrium, and then different rooms leading onto it. But in, in Egypt, and particularly in this village of Tepchunis, what we have is a courtyard on the very edge of the house, and that's an open space where lots of different activity goes on. So some cooking, lots of childcare, lots of just general exercise and living. Uh, and what we find is that leads out into the street. And as you go through the centuries, you see houses being built onto the sides of other houses. And these courtyard spaces become like a shared space between different houses. So as I said earlier, this kind of idea of family and household becomes a bit more nuanced and complex because different people from different sort of branches of the same family or indeed different families might share the same day-to-day -day living space certainly if it's outdoor space like a courtyard and we've got evidence that you know people did share these courtyards and and they were used for shared cooking and for shared childcare and so on so young people children they would have been surrounded by their older siblings their cousins we know from the census that they would have had uh, in many instances in Egypt uh, slaves or people who were categorised as slaves living in the same house as well. Uh, and one of the things we do find in, in lots of private letters and so on is that slaves uh, were very much part of the household in a way that surprises us a little bit when we think about what we understand of slavery. Uh, and we know that free children grew up in the households with slave children of the same age. Uh, so there's a lot of peer interaction between children uh, when we're thinking about the household space itself. Um, but of course, you know, we've got, these are small communities uh, in sort of rural areas, in the villages, uh, in different areas of Egypt. 
We also have the big cities, of course, um, like Oxyrhynchus or Alexandria, where things, as you might expect, would be slightly different and young people would live in larger households, but still, you know, surrounded by other children as well and other young people. Would they interact with slaves at all? And if they did, how, how does that play out? Yeah, so we've got some documents, some private letters. So, for instance, off the top of my head, there's one document where a father is writing to a local official and he's complaining that the young slave girl in his house was delivering something to a pastry cook and the pastry cook assaulted the girl um, and damaged her face or her lip and he's appealing to the local magistrate uh, for recompense. Uh, And in that letter... He, he uses a lot of rhetoric. He really plays up to this sense that, you know, this, this slave girl was actually a good playmate for his own son and they're with the same age. So he really plays on, tries to pull the heartstrings of the local magistrates by saying, you know, these, these kids get on in my house. This slave girl is like one of our family, blah, blah, blah. All very well to the, to the modern ear sounds awful in many respects, of course, and, and most likely was. Uh, but the the point being that it was expected that young people who were of slave status would live and, and you know engage and play with children of the same age in in households. We also have evidence for the fact that slaves weren't just you know it wouldn't be the case that there'd be one slave uh, in a household. There'd be a fa- there are families um, where it does appear that the mother of of some children was also a slave uh, and had been responsible for some childcare of the free children. So you might have a case where, uh, you know, someone had been a a nurse or a wet nurse to the free children in the house and her own children were then, obviously, when they were born, were given slave status, but end up being the same age as, as, as the free children in the house. So I think... You know, we can never tell how these things play out without speculating, but it does seem to be very, very common that uh, these relationships must have been uh, quite sort of, from a child's perspective, very, very common and very, very playful in many ways. You know, we've got evidence of of young people sharing toys, um, sharing certainly the same space, and in some cases sharing the same breast milk when they're younger uh, and so on. So, yeah, there's a lot to be said for trying to understand the lives of children who were enslaved or born into slavery in many ways in this, in this context. I find that really interesting, that whole slave and freeman kind of relationship between children. Because the question would be, would these kids actually understand that, you know, depending from a certain age, that these kids are slaves and these kids are freeborn. Yeah, it's really difficult to, to grasp when you're thinking about a world where the mentality was, you know, the, the mindset was so ingrained that, that some people are born to be slaves and natural slaves and so on. And one wonders how far that, that would have been ingrained in young people's minds or how far it just didn't really to a young person uh, the ideology of it um, but we do have lots of documents where um, where it's mentioned by the adults in a household that the free child in the house for instance owns a share of a slave or is actually the owner of a slave 
Um, but it's never, it's never, of course, you know, an issue of children being involved in in selling slave children and so on. But yeah, it's it's one of these things where I really desperately wish we had more evidence for, and it's really difficult to find. Um, but one thing I'm doing with a colleague in Finland is we're systematically going through all the documents from one big metropolis in Egypt, Oxyrhynchus, and trying to find evidence that reconstructs young people's lives. And we have a whole section on the children we know to have been slaves or slave status. Um, and you just hit a roadblock. There's just not very much written about them unless somebody wants to seek some kind of financial redress for for their uh, how they might consider property having been damaged or lost or run away or so on. So it's yeah, it's really difficult slavery in the ancient world because we just don't have the kind of slave testimony that you might get from uh, from later periods of history. So let's talk about beyond the household. Um, would children, will free children, go to work? Well, yeah, so we, we've got lots of evidence for a particular type of work that young people were involved in, um, and these were apprenticeships. So there were lots of different trades in Egypt, and one of the most prominent is weaving and textiles. And even though most families in, you know, there were some very well-known families who were good practitioners of the trade and were well-known and involved in business. And in fact, in quite a lot of cases, these businesses uh, were family-based and were led by a matriarchal figure in the family. So women were very closely involved in this. But what we do find is young people, even if they've got that background themselves, are being sent away to go and learn the trade somewhere else. So, of course, in many respects, it's, it's labour, it's work. Uh, they go off to work in a workshop. Um, but the contracts that they sign and have arranged for them really do point out these specifics of the fact that they have to learn a trade right so uh, we've got documents where it's signed on behalf of the the master of a workshop uh, agreeing to various conditions and the main condition is that after a certain period of time this young person will have been trained up and will know the art of weaving uh, so we know that this exists in a kind of educational context in a way learning a trade in a very real sense and these agreements were made between uh, workshop owners and then someone in the child's family so usually uh, uh, an uncle or a, a mother or a grandmother someone like that would make this contract and everyone would sign it and it's quite interesting to see the kind of clauses in this contract and the detail they go into uh, in terms of what the young people themselves are allowed to do. So we might expect that it's a simple case of, you know, you go off, you learn your trade, you come back. But actually in one or two cases, we've got examples of where the young person themselves will get to decide whether or not they live in the workshop or they can come home at the end of the day. Uh, so you get this clause that says, you know, you'll go and work from sunrise to sunset and then come home. And then they detail who pays all the taxes and who pays for clothing and food and so on. Uh, and then we get clauses that subtly hint at the fact that, that some apprentices are a bit work shy and pretend to be ill and take the day off and all of that kind of thing. So, yeah, there's lots of evidence that 
that these apprenticeships are quite a formal part of, of young people's lives uh, and not just the well-to-do young people, but, uh, you know, the people in small villages as well. And I keep saying young people, it's really difficult to, to get the ages unless they're specified. But we know of apprenticeships um, from 10 years of age right up to, you know, teenage years as well. So it is something that people learn to do at that kind of age group between 10 and 17, 18, that kind of age. Uh, yeah, and we've got loads of those documents. Um, and some of them even detail days off for religious holidays, that kind of thing. So it seems to be quite a formalised thing that happens. And all of these documents are quite formulaic. So there seems to have been a template that, that people stick to. And you imagine these, uh, when, when we go through these documents, there's always reference to other apprentices uh, in the same space. So it's not just a case of one or two young lads going learning a trade. It's They're going to a workshop where there's quite a lot of other people uh, doing the same thing. So you'd imagine that, you know, um, the owner of an, an Egyptian owner of a workshop would have, you know, numerous uh, 10 to 17 year olds come at the same time under contract to learn the trade, help him with his uh, business and then go off again. Uh, that seems to to be the situation in lots of villages and smaller towns as well as uh, around the big cities so these young people would have been from different parts of the surrounding areas so if you were a 12 year old apprentice you'd go and every day for about three years some of these last four you'd spend three years day to day in the company of other young people your own age who'd come from different parts of egypt and it's uh, as Alina might remember from taking my course uh, and, and listening to me babble on about Egypt, it's such a multicultural place uh, that had such a diversity of different religions, different local traditions, different ethnic groups who'd moved there over the course of, of time. So it was quite the kind of melting pot. And one would imagine that in these workshops, young people would have been exposed to lots and lots of different cultures and languages and religions and so on. So you might imagine it'd be quite a formative experience for, for certainly for the young men who, who would have been uh, involved in that. Um, does this include girls as well as boys? Can they be apprentices? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> if there's one thing that we know less of than, than, than children generally, it's, it's girls, uh, young female children. What we have got is we have got some of these documents for girls, um, but they tend to be girls who are of slave status. So most of these apprentices, uh, the, the young men are free, freeborn, and the slaves, the examples we've got of women, uh, young girls rather, are uh, basically um, it's somebody allowing their slave to go and learn a trade and come back. Now, obviously, you know, that, that makes no difference from the perspective of, of how we're trying to assess the experience of children in antiquity. It just makes a difference from the perspective of what's in the contract. Um, and we do have uh, one or two freeborn girls as well. But actually, there's a suspicion uh, with some of those documents that actually the apprenticeship didn't exist, just didn't exist. What we get with uh, a, lo a lot of these apprenticeship contracts is you send your kid off to learn this trade 
uh, and there's a financial uh, kind of catch with it. You get a loan from the workshop owner and then you have to pay it back. They've got your young person working for them kind of as security on that loan. Uh, and of course, you might imagine a situation in which, well, you know, people would borrow money and dress it up as an apprenticeship agreement um, in order to avoid certain types of taxes and, and business uh, things. So in the cases where we've got girls, um, it's not very clear that they actually did uh, go and do these apprenticeships, apart from one or two examples. Yeah. So it's a bit of a, an odd situation there. And it's difficult to know what to do with that. <laughs> you, you said earlier, obviously, that the written evidence is really, really difficult. Mm. But do you have anything, and I'm, I'm saying do you have anything, well, actually, no, you do have something, which is why I'm asking this question, um, that shows a child's experience or thoughts at the time? Yeah, I mean, you can never really um, get to the kind of, emotion uh, and the emotional aspects of children what you can try and do is recover something of their perspective uh, and one way we can do this is through looking at small objects uh, archaeological artifacts and this is really really tricky and you have to be a bit imaginative and creative and archaeologists are great at doing this in a, such a way that's properly kind of theoretically informed and methodologically sound uh, and I've tapped into some of that looking at material. And I was involved in, in somebody's project at the Petrie Museum of Egyptian Archaeology uh, at UCL. And it's a great museum. It's the kind of place where you open a cupboard door and stuff just falls out. It's cram-packed full of artefacts uh, from Egypt, collected by Flinders Petrie. Um, what we've got is from the Roman and late antique period, we've got lots of objects. And my sort of job in that project was to look at things related to childhood and it was really difficult because what is a bit of child's material culture you know we think about toys but I don't know about you I played with anything when I was a kid uh, and different you know typewriters were important to me for some bizarre reason I don't know why but they're not toys you know so no one would think to to look at those what we found in that museum was lots of uh things that we would classify as dolls, uh, things that we would classify as model animals, little small versions of things, things that were associated with certain child uh, protective cults and religions, and uh, little wooden horses. And so my favourite of all the artefacts that I've ever looked at in my career so far is this great example of a little pull-along wooden horsey um, I can no longer say horse when I'm talking about it. I have to say horsey for some reason. <laughs> Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. <laughs> it's a little horsey. Um, we got to, you know, we went to the museum on the days where it was closed to the public and they just had, you know, school groups coming in and everything. And I remember once sitting in this like little roped off bit at a desk and playing with this little horsey, handling it very, very carefully. And lots of kids just staring at me over the rope as if was this, this weird woman looking and playing with a little horsey. Uh, so I looked a bit bonkers. But actually, when you get hold of some of these objects, you can tell quite a lot from them. So this object I had, it was like, um, if you can imagine, you've seen them. You've seen them, you know, these things on wheels from the modern era uh, where you they have a bit of string in their nose and you put and the child pulls it along and walks along with it and so I just thought that's what it was uh you know a kid can play with it but actually when I started holding it I realized how out of proportion everything was and the back wheels were much bigger than the front wheels uh and you could tell where the axles for the wheels went through the wooden horsey itself and its feet uh it was all worn inside the hole so you could tell the thing had been turning, it had been used. There, were, there was a hole in the nose where a string had clearly been attached and it had been pulled along. But even me, I, I couldn't manage it with my own two hands. It wouldn't stay upright while I was trying to move it. And when I was thinking about that, I began to think, well, you know, this isn't sturdy enough for someone with smaller hands than me to play with on their own. And it became very obvious that quite a few of these examples were of the same sort of size and shape and proportion. And actually, they were great for shared play and so for people to play with together. And it got me thinking, you know, because all of these are from the wooden horses are all from uh, a village called Karanis, which is one of these rural areas that had had a lot of, um, in the Roman period, a lot of uh, military settlements and a lot of veterans had had grown up uh, in, in that area, veterans of the Roman army. So it was quite you know, uh, appropriate that they would give their kids horses to play with because they were descendants of cavalry soldiers and so on. Uh, but yeah, when you look at the houses that I talked about earlier, where people had shared courtyard spaces outdoors, it's difficult to see a child would ever play with this on their own. It was designed for things to be shared amongst other uh, different children and played around with. So it gives us an insight into what kids are doing uh, with other kids and that they're playing together and then when we look at things like the dolls that we looked at um, when you look at dolls from the Roman world there's quite a lot of work being done on this the idea of a Roman doll is it's all, they're called Faustina dolls and they're all dressed up like uh, empresses with a certain type of hairstyle and they emphasize their breasts and their navel and abdomen and so on it's meant to be this is what women should do they should have you know they should be of a certain social status have their hair like this in the roman fashion and they should be prepared to have babies you know and we get a lot of that in the egyptian dolls but what we get more of in these egyptian figurines is this kind of malleability so some of them are made of papyrus and rags you can actually move the arms and legs about they're a bit more poseable so you start thinking less about who's produced the toy and made it and a bit more about what kids are actually doing with them. So you start thinking kids of kids more of 
active agents in play rather than people who just consume what they're given as passive kind of people. So it's it can get really sort of theoretical when you start thinking about how we study child and children. But obviously we know from contemporary studies and sociology that, you know, play and early childhood such a formative part of, of people's lives that actually the more evidence we find that that children play together in certain ways and with certain social rules and values and norms, the more that we can kind of get an insight into how people were expected to grow up and how they actually grew up and if there's any difference between those things. Yeah, so there's quite a lot of that kind of material. It's really exciting to to look at, especially when you look at it in conjunction with all the the texts and the documents as well. Uh, And you get to play with horses. (laughs) I was about to ask you, is there any chance you take Alex and I to this place to play with these horses? Yeah, anytime. Once we're all opened up again and we're allowed into museums properly, (laughs) we can do a session. Yeah, Alex, we'll play with together in the spirit of the horses and the distancing is gone, can we? (laughs) But we can, you know, pretend that we're charging at each other from a distance. Yeah, I suppose so. On guard. Oh, no, wait, they didn't say that in those days. Well, I'm, I'm guessing, though, that's interesting, though, because, um, as I say, these were found in Quranis, and you've got... So in the Roman army, um, you know, if you were going to be a legionary soldier, you had to be a Roman citizen already. But if you were joining the auxiliaries, the point was that you get citizenship if you're lucky enough to survive uh, your service as, a, as a, an auxiliary soldier. And... Many of the auxiliary cohorts that were in Egypt were cavalry related. Uh, and so you get a lot of surviving veterans settling there and raising their sons there, hopefully to sign up as well. And so you get all of these kind of military little things. So some of these horses have, uh, you can detect hints of paint on them. So there was a soldier painted onto it and, and that kind of thing. So it's kind of evidence of how you know, the society that produced, the adults who produced the toys try to kind of inculcate some sense of their own identity in their children. Just like, you know, we give girls Barbie dolls, we give boys soldiers and Transformers. And so, you know, you try to get kids to to think in certain ways according to your own social values and norms and so on. Uh, so that's kind of the reasoning. And you'd expect that kind of the point of all of these horses was that, they would play games of charge and military games. Um, but we all know kids, they probably just, you know, threw them at walls as well. <laughs> <And just> <laughs> or played Henry VIII with them, not that Henry VIII was around. I did not do that as a child. If anybody's listening, I did not do that as a child. <clears throat> anyway, moving on very quickly. Um, I'm going to say this wrong, completely, this word completely wrong. Ephibate. Ephibate, yes. Ephibate. Yeah. Okay. You mentioned you you did mention it earlier, not that you mentioned the word, but you mentioned a little bit about what it was before. But do tell our listeners what it is and how did it work and why was it so important? Yep, so the Ephibate is um there'll be lots of classical Greek historians listening to this cringing and telling me I'm wrong. <laughs> um but the Ephibate is kind of a, a social political, civic, sporting kind of structure or that, that existed in classical Athens in the 5th century BC. And what we find in the Roman period that I'm looking at is that most of the 
the areas of, that fell under the Roman Empire in the east, so Egypt included, um, they kind of ran around these civic structures. So Egypt is, you know, the Romans kind of happily let Egypt run itself to many respects, many respects. And how it's set up is that you have these big metropolises that are set up kind of on the model of the classical Athenian polis. You know, the, the language that everyone speaks officially on official documents is Greek. All of our documents are Greek. And they try to mimic the setup of Greek cities, how they work with things like town councils uh, and so on. And now one of the things that that's important about this is the ephebate uh, and the associated structures. It's the process through which young boys um, become or kind of get turned into a citizen. So much in the same way we talked earlier about, you know, Plato's idea about the ideal citizens incomplete as a child until they pass through all these various things. So this is a very elite structure. It exists in these elite Greek or Hellenized cities uh, in the Roman East. Uh, and they're based around your ability to um, conduct yourself in certain ways. So it's kind of, it's a little bit hereditary in some senses. And in Egypt, it gets mixed up with this thing called the gymnasium. So you have this massive social group called the metropolitan elite. And within that, you have the gymnasial groups that are kind of linked in ways we don't fully understand, actually, to an ephebate structure. So the general sense of it is just to kind of mimic this kind of very elite Hellenized way of getting people to become citizens but of course it ends up like um it's, it's kind of eaten you know you make your connections uh through your schooling and your education and your connection with these things it's very kind of a closed system so you know they have a, a thing called an epicrisis which is a process by which you get entered into these things so the documents that show us about that show young boys who are 14 being listed on a document, being nominated by their father. Their father has to say, well, I, uh, I was in this gymnasial group or that ephebate or connected in that way. So was my father, so was my father's father. And as the generations go on, these documents get longer, <laughs> listing different, uh, you know, having to really support the fact that it's a hereditary entitlement to be part of this. And why is that important? Well, it's important because... It's, it shows two things. First, it shows how important youth is to the survival and the running of, of civic life in Egypt. You know, it, it, these things get perpetuated uh, through hereditary and social status through young people. So it's very difficult to defend any argument that suggests that young people and children are kind of marginal and incidental to history. They're not. They're very much at the centre of it. Uh, and the other thing it does is it, it gives us a sense of how cities work generally. So, you know, young people uh, can only do certain things if they're in one of these gymnasial groups. So we've got lots of documents where these well-to-do people uh, get access to education. Some of them are bilingual. They learn Greek and Egyptian and sometimes other languages. Um, they get access to travel in certain ways, so they get to go and visit other big cities. Uh, they get connections with various people that they can later trade on in later life. They'll get access to become 
a town councillor or some kind of magistrate in their local setting. So it's quite a kind of closed system of elite and it's a way of perpetuating itself. Uh, and it kind of loosely ties into the, the sort of classical Greek way of doing things. So I, I'm, I'm interested in some of these because it gives us an idea of the different kinds of experiences that different children might have had. So you're looking at the ancient world, but you're just looking at one place, Egypt. But you've got difference, we've already said, between if you were a slave or a freeborn or if you were a girl or a boy. And now if, you, you know, if you've grown up in a city and you're connected to these kind of social groups, your experience would have been massively different again so there's such a variety of experience that it's really nice to try and see how we can reconstruct that and it's a reminder that you know people experience everything differently whether the you know your man woman child whatever ethnic group you are uh, all of those different things people experience very very differently so yeah we've got lots of documents for that because it's the kind of thing that was well documented so you know, you, you literally had to have the document to prove that you were entitled to, to hold these various positions. So these documents exist in abundance. Um, and they're quite interesting, but in some cases they're just quite dull because they're quite repetitive, just lists of names and so on. Were children involved in priesthood and the cults? Yeah, so this is another one. So this is why I think it's important to think about what role children play in actually kind of carrying on your values and your cultures so we've seen examples of young people carrying on military culture and then through this affibate the gymnasial groups carrying on you know this kind of elite kind of social uh, cultures and norms and values and then the religious ones that we have this is very as i said earlier it's such a diverse place and there's so many different kind of cults what we get in Egypt is there's one particular cult that's really interesting and focused on children, um, and it's related to Harpocrates, who is a kind of Greco-Roman version-ish of the Egyptian god Horus, uh, who you can read all about <laughs> by just Googling Horus uh, very easily. Um, but very, very important kind of, almost meant to be the child of Horus, and he's this very particular figure who in many ways looks like a little cherubic figure. And he always has his finger to his mouth. If you imagine someone saying shush and they've got their finger to the mouth, he always does that gesture. So we've got lots of images of him everywhere you look. Um, and it became something that was, you know, you find it on figurines, you find it in paintings, you find it everywhere. And he's the protector god of, uh, of children. So children would have had images of, of Harpocrates on their jewellery, on their household goods, ornaments, knickknacks all around their houses. He would have been a constant presence. And then we get other kind of uh, priestly cults, some of which we know more about than others. Uh, but in order to enter into them, uh, young people had to be, it had to be hereditary in a sense. And there's some great, really interesting documents from Tabtunis where we have a woman who's writing to a local priest, trying to get her son and her nephew into this priesthood or to be considered for it when they're in their teenage years. And she's asking the priest permission to have them circumcised so that they can then um, be considered for entrance into this, this priesthood. 
So there's lots of things that we've got evidence for. And again, it's great to find a mix of texts and images uh, that support those. Um, and yeah, one thing that we don't have is the child's experience. Um, we do know from earlier periods of Egypt that children were absolutely the central focus of many of these local cults. And what we know from the Greco-Roman period, so the Ptolemaic and the Roman period, is that many of these cults kind of carried on and were adapted and uh, merged in various ways and kind of Romanized or Hellenized to an extent. So there's the weird figure that we get called the grotesque um, uh, Harpocrates. That's not my word, that's the word that's given to it. But we find Harpocrates suddenly developing a phallus so you can imagine my surprise when I'm looking for images of Harpocrates, this, this delicate, child-protecting, cute, cherubic god, uh, deity. And then you find an image of him with a gigantic penis. Uh, <laughs> 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 you think, wow, what's this? And that's just a sign of, I don't think it means anything other than it's just a sign of how hellenized and romanized things get and that's i I often think there's nothing more romanized than a giant phallus on something Uh, we we keep coming back to the giant phallus always we've always loved a giant penis (laughs) well on that note yeah uh so (laughs) they uh yeah so we find a lot of that uh there so yeah young people were definitely central to to a lot of religious activity both in the home and in temples and, and in general, generally. And they're also depicted on funerary art as well, aren't they? Oh, yeah. So there's some great um, funerary art. Oh, that sounds awful, doesn't it? I don't mean great funerary I mean, there's some interesting material that you find with funerary art. And you have to remember as a historian that funerary art is, is a particular kind of art, isn't it? And it's... It's kind of what we might call symbolic childhood that we get at. So people put on their um, tombstones of their children an image of either what they thought that child represents and how they kind of represented their social group or what that child's missed out on. So if you look around the Greek and Roman world and very sadly when you find um, inscriptions and tombstones with art on them or just with inscriptions, you that are for children what you get is this very poignant and sad kind of description of what that child has missed out on and where they could have gone next and it's very much the hope of of that child's parents and and so on um what we get in egypt uh, particularly in the greco-roman period is a very greco-roman kind of uh, spin on on the egyptian burial uh, art is we get the mummy portraits and these are kind of these wooden portraits that would be placed on on the sarcophagus and they're very i don't want to use the word realistic but they're very very striking and you look at any of these mummy portraits you can look at a lot of them on museum websites and i think uh wiki commons uh the whole collection of them is online and there are some of children and there's one in particular that's i always find very striking and it's of a young boy and he's got his hair shaved and with a couple of tufts of hair and then a kind of ponytail at the side of his head. And that's known as the Horus Lock. And so this Harpocrates cult that I mentioned, young people associated with that would have had this Horus Lock. They would have had the shaven head and, and the, the 
the lock of hair. So in the funerary art, this, this child's parents or family, whoever buried him, have chosen to represent him in this very, very striking way. And they've chosen that for his funerary image. It's almost like, um, you know, this is what he was about. He represented this cult. Um, and we never know whether that's what the child would have wanted to be represented as. But, you know, this is what this, this idea of symbolic childhood, you're a kind of vision of hope for the continuity of a particular culture or set of values and so on. So you get some really um, striking funerary art from, uh, from childhood. And that's true across the Greek and Hellenistic and Roman worlds more generally. There's such a lot of um, meaning that you can read uh, from this type of artwork. Yeah, so some really interesting stuff there. So what I guess we're saying is that children are in nearly every aspect of Roman Egyptian life as they are in life now. That's music to my ears, yeah. That's exactly uh, uh, what I feel about um, looking at children in history generally, but certainly in ancient history. And it's, you know, I when I was an undergraduate studying for a degree, there were no courses on Roman childhood or ancient childhood. It was something that occupied a paragraph in a chapter of the main textbook. and But actually, they're integral to not just integral to everything, they're, they're everywhere, you know. We look at the ancient world, they were actually, demographically speaking, very young populations. So, you know, in the population that we live in now, there are more old people than young people. But in the pre-modern world, it was the other way around. So there were more, far more young people than old people. So children would have been both seen and heard. They would have been everywhere. So, you know, in the world of work, in the world of um, rural life and subsistence, and in the family, in religious life, in politics, in civic institutions, we see them everywhere. And it's a matter of actually looking for them um, more than actually, you know, <laughs> anything else. The one thing we don't have much of is evidence of what children actually thought in their own words, because part of partly that's accident of history you know we're talking about a long time ago things haven't survived but also the nature of the material that has survived has been so tainted towards male elite public spheres of life so you know they they talk about ideals with warfare and politics and so on children very very rarely feature in the idealistic type of that apart from you know as yet uh, incomplete citizens um, but there are two pieces of really interesting evidence that I love to mention. One is a little letter we've got from someone called Theon writing to his father. And this is great because if it is what it appears to be, it's pretty much one of less than a handful of documents from the ancient world written by a child. And it's just this stroppy letter uh, he's writing to his father, who's clearly going away on business to back and forth to Alexandria. And this young kid writes, uh, oh, um, yeah, thanks for all the presents that were rubbish. He, he writes in this petulant kind of sarcastic way. He says, you, you never take me to the city. Uh, and if you don't take me next time, I'm just not going to eat. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to say hello or kiss your hand. I'm not going to do this and that. I'm just having a bit of a strop, basically. And it's it's wonderful to read that. It's It's really kind of telling to see. Uh, this evidence of a young child's emotional reaction to what's going on around him uh, in his his world and how he views that and how he chooses to 
to use that to shape his own view of the world. And then the other piece is an object we found in the Petra Museum that I mentioned earlier. It's this great, um, it's just a figurine of a, a face. It's very fine, um, about the size of a small hand, basically, uh, part of a figurine. And it's a very nice face. <laughs> we don't know much more about it than that. But I detected a slight mark in it. And then when we got the microscope on it, we noticed it was a fingerprint. And it was a fingerprint smaller than my little finger. And it was definitely a fingerprint. Uh, so we know that a child's hand, possibly even a, a toddler's hand, made that imprint when the clay was wet. So when it was being made in antiquity. So we know from that that children were just everywhere. You know, you can imagine whoever's making that that piece of pottery in a workshop or in their home, but it's quite fine, so it would have been in a workshop, would have had their child with them at the time. So you can imagine literally everything that adults do, they're probably carrying their kids around with them, <laughs> traipsing behind them, uh, getting involved in things. And then we've got other objects where we think children have been involved in kind of painting on them or helping to make the indents for the eyes or the ears or whatever. So you can see children's hands or literally their fingerprints, you know, uh, being involved in the production of their culture as well as the consumption of it. So, yeah, there's quite a lot of that kind of thing that we see. Um, you can read all about these in a book I've got forthcoming um, on the Petrie uh, Museum, and that's by Ellen Swift, Joe Stoner and myself, and that will be released with Oxford University Press um, in the next year or so, where you get full colour images of some of those objects. And um, you can look on my website and see various other uh, items that I've written as well uh, with some of these documents and stuff as well. That's incredible. I mean, April, thank you so much for joining us and talking to us about children from the Roman Egyptian period. Some of the amazing artefacts that, you know, children held, played with, that, you know, you even leave, for example, that fingerprint. That is just absolutely just incredible. So thank you so much for joining us. Very, very welcome. It's been a real pleasure, real pleasure catching up and talking to you. Join us tomorrow when the fabulous Leanne Renault will be with us to talk all about runaway slaves in the Caribbean and marinage. Find out what that means tomorrow. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so.